this is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what that future transformation will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. We also spotlight recent news with CEA's Government Relations Director Michael Powell and bring you different voices from the CEA team. But to start the podcast, here's my discussion with Kara Clareman, the President and CEO of Plug and Drive. Welcome, Kara. Well, thank you. It's great to have you on the podcast and an opportunity for us to talk about electric vehicles and electrification. Fantastic. So here we are at uh, the, uh, the I guess it's the Electric Mobility Canada's annual conference. Right. And this is the fifth time that we're partnering uh, for, for the awards. Of course. Now, yeah. I, I mean, I, I want to talk about other stuff than the awards, but uh, what was the genesis of the awards? Because I've only recently sure, become involved in sure. it. You were working with some of the other partners. Right. Here. So... One of the things that happened around the, the time where we started that first year was the dealers were getting a lot of flack. Uh, there were a lot of news stories, negative news stories about, okay. uh, you know, I went to the dealer and they tried to get me to buy something else and the dealers are terrible okay. and they don't care about EV and blah, blah. And mm-hmm. so uh, we thought, well... You know, it's hard to sell EVs, especially five, six years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, There weren't a lot of makes and models available. They couldn't get a lot of supply. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why. And we thought it would be great to focus on the positive stories Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, always criticizing the dealers for not doing enough. Let's find the dealers that really are doing great and celebrate them instead. Okay. And so that was our original idea, and we approached the CEA back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, Jim Burpee was uh, was was our, was our president. Yes, yeah. who you may yeah. know was at uh, yeah. one time my boss at OPG. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and suggested would be a great partnership. We could celebrate the mm-hmm. the leading dealers. It would be a very positive story, and he was keen to help out. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it got started. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started with uh, just the three awards, which was uh, leading battery electric. Mm-hmm. Uh, leading plug-in hybrid. And we realized we had to separate these out because it was hard for them to compete with each other. Right. They were just different. Yeah. Uh, and then also sort of what we called an inspiration type of award because there were areas of the country that had no incentives mm-hmm. And it was way harder for them to sell electric vehicles than in a province like BC, Ontario, Quebec, right. where they had incentives. So we wanted to have an award where someone who was doing something amazing mm-hmm. in a province with no support whatsoever should be recognized separately. Right. So that was what that inspiration award was about. Yeah. And uh, it was amazing what some people were doing in, for example, Newfoundland mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Uh, other places. And we were able to recognize th- their work. We added about two years ago, uh, actually the year that Tom Mitchell retired from right. OPG, the Tom, Tom Mitchell, Mitchell Award, yeah. Award uh-huh. for the Leading Utility. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do something special for Tom. Uh, Tom was the CEO of OPG, as you know, and he uh, was a big supporter of Plug and Drive and also really um 
if not for him, I probably could never have gotten Plug and Drive started because he was our first corporate sponsor. He was he helped me get other sponsors. And so without him, really, I, I probably could never have, have uh, initiated it. Right. And so I wanted to do something special for him when he retired. And so that's how that award was born. And now we're in our second year of recognizing uh, a, a the third year, yeah. third year this okay. year. It's two years, but gotcha. uh, this is our third year of recognizing a leading utility, which which I think now is even better for our partnership with CEA. So so five years now of awards, but it's been a decade of plug and drive. Right. So where how did plug and drive start? What was the what was the sort of the impetus of that and the idea behind it? Yeah, so I was still working at OPG at the time mm-hmm. and at that time I was in the role of VP of sustainable development. Right. And so of course as a VP of sustainability in a large utility, you're always looking for those, you know, beyond compliance initiatives that you mm-hmm. could do. And uh, it was around 2007, 2008, actually, and we'd heard that this Chevy Volt was coming right. and the Nissan Leaf. They weren't even on the road yet, mm-hmm. but we heard about them and uh, we, we started doing a little, in, in my department, a little bit of sort of background research. And I just had this sort of aha moment because we were going off coal at the time. Mm-hmm. And so our emission profile at OPG was going to go way down just around that time. Right. And... Uh, we also had a giant surplus of nighttime electricity, which was mostly nuclear and hydro. Mm-hmm. And so we had this clean surplus at night, and I was realizing that people are going to plug those cars in when? At night. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's a winner. If we could get people to plug in their cars at night, we're going to suck up that surplus. That's going to be great for yeah. OPG. That's going to be great for the provincial economy. Instead of dumping that surplus into New York State and into Quebec at a loss every night, we could suck it up with EVs. And at the same time, you're going to get like a 90 plus percent emission reduction. I thought, here's a time where environment, you know, people often set up Mm -hmm. this dichotomy like environment against economy, like as if, well, it's always more expensive if it's good for the environment. But this was one of those times where Where it was a win, a win win on both sides, a classic win win. So I started doing some research in my Mm -hmm. department and we got a little bit of momentum. We had a little internal conference we invited some automakers like Mm -hmm. we started building relationships and then I went to Tom Mitchell and I said look I think this could really be something Mm -hmm. except it will be really hard for me to make much out of it staying inside OPG because every time I approached another utility they were like well what can we contribute your OPG and so I said to Tom you should help me to leave and get this started. And then I could get other utilities to support it too. Mm-hmm. And to my great surprise, he said, okay. And so then I walked <laughs> out of that meeting saying, I, I think I just quit. But um, he helped me to do that and yeah. he supported me. And uh, that's how it was born. So so um, how do you describe plug and drive to people that uh, that are coming, coming across it for the first time? Sure. So I say our vision is to accelerate EV adoption. Mm-hmm. And we do this primarily through education. Because one thing we realized when we first got started as a small little NGO startup, mm-hmm. it was like, what can a small NGO really do to help advance uh, EV? Well, we're not making cars mm-hmm. and we're not making chargers. And, you know, so there was certain areas where we thought, well, what, what could we, where could we really add value? And what I realized was there was this big educational gap that right. people didn't understand the cars, understand their benefits. And we saw this barrier this is a giant barrier to people actually adopting it's not one of those things that people can easily learn on mm-hmm. their own and so if we could fill that knowledge gap and help people understand the economic and environmental 
benefit, they'll do it. So mm-hmm. we focused on education. Uh, and, and still, I would say that is 80% of what we do is mm-hmm. EV education right. for the consumer. We also do some public policy work and we do research, but again, all to bolster the education side of things. And, and then you've got the Discovery Center, which I, right. I, I visited, but I visited it on a day when there was a snowstorm, so we didn't get quiet. to drive the vehicles. Yeah, yeah. But well, so, yeah, we so, have to be careful about that. Well, yeah. so the... the EV Discovery Center, which we're now, uh, this month is two years that we've been opened. Um, It's actually a world first of Mm -hmm. of that type of interactive, uh, experiential learning place. And this is sort of like a step further along the journey of education. So in the past, what we had was we realized what automakers realized a long time ago, which is butts in seats sell cars. And that people need to try the car Mm -hmm. to really be sold on it. And more so, I think, even for EV than a regular car, because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of misconceptions. So it's like they get in the car and they have that, wow, this is a really good car. I could totally drive this car. You know, they just need to have that kind of confirmation that this is okay. And what we found, what we were doing, so we were doing education, but we would go to events. We would do basically pop-up shops. We'd go to Young Ananda Square. We'd go to the Green Living Show. We'd go to the Auto Show. And we'd go to county festivals, like wherever, and we would do events there. But what we were finding is it wasn't enough, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a one-day, two-day, here-and-there thing. And what we thought, well, if we could create a one-stop shop where people knew it was going to be there and all the vehicles were going to be there, mm-hmm. because what we were finding is a lot of dealers couldn't get vehicles. Right. So if people knew, hey, I can go to one place, try all the different vehicles in one place, and just learn, no pressure to buy anything, oh, we yeah, thought yeah. this would okay. be the best way to help people yeah. learn about EVs. So and it's get not, there's not salespeople in the no showroom? No sales. This is just education people. We yeah. call them EV specialists. Yeah. I mean, they're mostly EV drivers. Yeah. And so they've really lived it. We'll help you with the home charging. We'll help you with the apps to find the right public charging. We'll help right. you with your condo if you need an EV install. We'll help you find an electrician. We'll, we'll help you with the whole soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. So we're not like a dealer at all. And in fact, the dealers, when we first opened, they were not, to be honest, they were not too supportive. Um, because I think they, they weren't sure what we were going to be. Right. They couldn't believe we were going to do this thing and not sell cars. And so <laughs> I think they were kind of suspicious of that initially. And then what they started realizing is we were making referrals to them. Right. And they started seeing us as a helper. Mm-hmm. And in fact, now it's totally changed. The dealers are extremely supportive. Uh, and in fact, when a lot of the dealers have run out of supply, because of course, we're still in these early days yep. where supply is a struggle, they send their customers to us because they're like, a customer comes in, so I'm really interested in this particular mm-hmm. car and they don't have it. Right. And so they say, oh, well, we know Plug and Drive has it. So you can go over there, test drive it. If you like it, you can order it. So we're helping oh, okay. dealers with no supply gotcha. make a sale. And so we've really found there's a nice relationship going on. Of course, we would love it if they had more cars, mm-hmm. and we hope that they will soon. I mean, that it looks promising that supply issues are going to be addressed. Mm-hmm. But for now, uh, it's really our, our center is almost more important than ever because of that low supply situation. So you've got this relationship now with the dealers. It sounds like they're they're they're, they're on board, they're on board, yeah. and they're comfortable. What about that that one big? Uh, electric vehicle manufacturer that doesn't have a dealer network. What about how does Tesla, Tesla. fit into all of this? So for many months we had a Tesla on display. Okay. We didn't have them doing any test drives. They like to do their own 
process. They didn't want to okay. participate with the rest of us, like yeah. the, the rest of the automakers that way. So all the other automakers are, are on board. Uh, Tesla is on board. They just they have their uh, their own store just down the road at Yorkdale. So what we tend okay. to do is refer people over there. Gotcha. All right. So one of the one of the things that's happened recently, the last time you and I had a chance to chat, was uh, was when we were in Ottawa for the federal budget. Right. So we we now have federal subsidies mm-hmm. um, that are that actually started just I guess last week. Right. Uh, in addition to subsidies in in a couple of provinces, how important are subsidies still? And and at what point? Are they going to no longer be as significant? Because it's the same issue in the States, right? Right. Federal subsidies. Well, look, subsidies do help. I mean, we Mm -hmm. know that from the data, right? Because we have data in provinces where there have been subsidies and then subsidies were lost. And, you know, you see a huge change in in buying behavior. So we know it helps. I'm one of those people who believes that it won't be for too much longer that they'll be necessary. Mm-hmm. All the uh, analysts that, you know, and I'm not an analyst, but that do this work that are doing predictions on price, like battery prices are dropping year over year. Right. You know, the, part of the part of the issue with the more expensive EVs is, you know, economies of scale. You know, you need factories making more EVs to sure. make it more affordable. So we are seeing the prices of the vehicles coming down over time. Mm-hmm. And we are going to hit that price parity time. Most are predicting sort of 2024, 2025, like okay. in that ballpark. So your sense is that the incentives are, are a bridge to get us to Exactly. When that no at that, that point, it no. shouldn't be needed. To be honest, mm. it's economic today. Mm-hmm. But the challenge is you pay more up front mm-hmm. and you save over time with the low operating costs. Because, of right. course, you know, being an electricity right. guy, electricity is much cheaper than gas. Yeah. But this is something most regular consumers don't know mm-hmm. because, of course, they've never lined up the price of gas against the price of electricity. There was never any need to do right. that. Yeah. And so in Ontario, it's about a fifth. Uh, of the price of, of gas, electricity is, especially at time of use prices at mm-hmm. night in Quebec, it's about a seventh, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and on and on. OBC gas prices are extremely high, so their, their ratio is even more. So, you know, there, there's a real economic case. If people do the math, like if I own this car for five years, by then I'm going to have paid off the price difference and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saving money. It's really hard to motivate people to pay now to save later. Right. And uh, leasing does help you do that. But Mm -hmm. even so, this is information that really has to get into the public consciousness because they're so used to looking at a sticker price Mm -hmm. and the price of gas wasn't relevant because you were paying that no matter which car you bought. Right. Uh, So this is this has been kind of a it's a bit of a thinking change for people. So is there a jurisdiction that you point to elsewhere in the world that's been doing this and doing this well that we should be looking at? Yeah, yeah, there is. So the the most successful jurisdiction on this is Norway. Now, what Norway did is kind of the opposite of what most other countries have done. Most countries are incenting EVs with a subsidy of some sort. Mm -hmm. You know, you see it in California, you see it here, you see it uh, in most of the, you know, Nordic countries that that's what you see what Norway did was the opposite is they put giant taxes on gas cars instead okay and made actually EV more economical than buying a gas car on the sticker price okay so and those, so those, those weren't existing tariffs these are ones that they ramped up they added on oh, okay. and so and then what they also did is provided a whole bunch of other benefits like free 
driving in the HOV lane, free Mm -hmm. parking in Oslo, and all sorts of other perks that were linked to EV. And Mm -hmm. now they've seen an explosion in in terms of adoption, where their, uh, I think the 2018 numbers showed like 45% of the cars sold were EV. Right. So huge percentages compared to anywhere else. I mean, the next best is probably California, and they're they're still under ten, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's good, but it's not anything like what they're getting in Norway. So it shows you can do it. Right. You can really incentivize it, and um, yeah, they've done a great job. How how uh, significant? Is that that price differential now in Norway between a, uh, an EV and a non-EV? How much? Well, they've made them almost the same, which okay. is like, or an EV is just slightly less. Okay. But then, because of the savings over time, like you're you're starting at this equivalent point, and then people choose the EV because they can get this free parking and the free HOV and all these other things. Yep. And for a lot of people, for example, commuting into Oslo, like those are big things. So, uh, so those things have motivated people too. Mm-hmm. So they've no doubt now seen a significant reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Huge as a result reduction. Of really? Yes, eh? huge reduction. So they're already seeing that, that Definitely. Impact. All right. So what's the future going to look like for EVs here in Canada? What's the... what's The the nirvana, the hope, or the... <laughs> well, let's do both. What, yeah. what, what would be in an ideal world? And then what do you think, what do you, think uh, they, you know, the reality Realistic. is how we're going to move from here to there? Because it sounds as though, uh, you know, what you are saying earlier, we're going to get to a price parity we sometime. We will. Uh, not too far away, but... Right. Wh- well, you know, we... I'm a believer, right? That yeah, it's going to happen. Now, now, I think most, even the most um, kind of... Uh, dug in auto journalists now would say, you know what, it's going to happen eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really that's now a, a widely held view that it will right. happen eventually everywhere. Yeah. Um, some people predict it will take a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people are saying, you know, it'll be 10 years before we get to 10%. And, you know, uh, so, so that's, I would say more of the gas worldview that that's what's going to happen. I personally think it could happen a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, you see, for example, very high gas prices in British Columbia, yes. and you're seeing yeah. actually massive adoption right now. Now, yeah. it'll be interesting to see the the stats as they come out in the first quarter of of this year, because so we don't even have like the, the latest data. But um, though high gas prices really help motivate people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that you also see a lot more makes and models. So a couple of years ago, people say, how come there's so few EVs? It's like, well, there aren't very many to choose from, right? right? So there was only a couple of makes and models. And a lot of people would have said, well, I want a truck. I want mm-hmm. an SUV. I want this. I want that. And they, that wasn't an option yet. Right. Well, that issue's going away. Right. We don't. We don't have the trucks yet, but we, we now have the SUVs. We've got the SUVs, and yeah. we're going to get the trucks by right. 2020. Right. So suddenly, there's not going to be a style that you can't get. Right. And there'll be multiple options, right? Mm-hmm. So once you get into that scenario, there's a lot of people who are going to. Uh, Say and there are a lot of people saying right now. Well, my next car will be electric because I think by then uh, it, it's going to be available to me what I want. Right. And so I do think it could happen quickly. And I like to point to uh, the change that went from Blockbuster to Netflix. Okay. Because yeah, you know if you think about yeah. it, it's very similar. Now, mm-hmm. of course, investing in a you know in a 
service for your streaming is much less expensive than a car. So obviously there's differences. But if you think about it, you know, we used to go out to get our videos. We used to have to go to the place and we had to, you know, return it to the place. And it was kind of a hassle. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's what we had. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden there was something you could do at home that was cheaper and just better in every way. And everybody switched. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, EV is the same. You plug in at home, it's cheaper, Mm -hmm. it's more convenient. People imagine this is not going to be convenient, but of course it takes one second. I never have to go get gas. You know, that takes time. I never have to line up. I never have to stand out in the rain. I never have to do any (laughs) of these things. Mm -hmm. And so it's more convenient. It's more affordable. Everything about it is better. So why wouldn't you switch? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I think when that gets into kind of the public consciousness and there's every kind of choice, right. I really believe that it could happen quickly. So I think we're going to see, you know, a 10% even by 2025 mm-hmm. uh, here in Canada. And we're only just over, you know, we're just approaching 2% now. Right. But it's been, and I was looking at the statistics earlier this year with some of your colleagues. Um, while the numbers are relatively low, it's been growing exponentially. The right, last four right, years. like so doubling, like annual doubling, to to 48, yeah, exactly, and almost exactly, 000. exactly. So, and now, not only are there so many more makes and models to choose from, mm-hmm. there's also better financing options right. and better leasing options. And you know, uh, one thing I've learned, uh, sort of getting into this car business out of electricity, is that a lot of people uh, finance or lease their cars. A lot of people don't buy them outright, yep. and so this is something where we could have uh, more options for people and then you would really benefit from the save as you go kind mm-hmm, of thing because mm-hmm. of course if you're paying it all up front you know you save over time whereas if you're paying over time you're also saving over time it kind of it kind of fits with the model so right. we're definitely going to see a lot more options mm-hmm. in, in the financing area so maybe a, a little bit of a provocative question here um, we're uh, anticipating a continued, um, very significant growth in electric vehicles, um, price parity in a couple of years. Um, is it possible that five years from now you're going to get to the point where you're going to say, well, plug and drive, well, we, we achieved what we set out to do. Um, you know what? We're done. I hope or, that happens. Yeah, I really hope to be able to say we've that, achieved. that there will come a point, uh, I thought it might be sooner than it probably will be, <laughs> that it will come to a point where a plug and drive would not be needed. Yeah. Now, maybe we'd morph into some, uh, have, play some other role. Right. But that this idea that we're bridging the gap between the dealer and the consumer, right, uh, you know, the, the, in that buying process, mm-hmm. that we're helping, uh, that we wouldn't be needed. That the dealers are going to have the supply, they're going to be super knowledgeable, they're going to be up the curve on it all, and, and they won't be, uh, th- there won't be a need for an educator like us in the middle. Right. Uh, I hope so. Well, why don't we talk about used um, EVs? Because I know you've got a, a program now because so far all of the incentives are on the new side of things. Exactly. So, so we had this idea uh, a while back, and actually some of the other provinces, uh, BC and Quebec, do have special incentives just for used. Right. Now, uh, we were approached uh, by a private philanthropist that wanted to assist us in our work, just really supported what we were doing. And and we came up with this program on used because um, one of the really important things is people forget about used yeah. because EVs are so new. Mm-hmm. They haven't really thought that there is much of a used market. Right. But here in 2019, you've got 
2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, even 2016 is now coming off lease. Okay. And so actually there's quite a good supply of used EVs out there hmm. uh, on Auto Trader, on Kijiji, and of course uh, uh, the ability to bring them in from the U.S. Right. And so we thought, well, they're, they're available they're very affordable mm-hmm. and it allows a you know that it kind of helps get away from this idea oh evs are for the wealthy which is kind of a reputation evs got in the early days yeah. well new technology is often the first version of anything first computer first phone they were expensive right yeah. and then the prices come down over time which is what's happening with mm-hmm. ev but you know those first early adopters they did tend to be wealthier and the cars were more expensive now we're getting into a more mainstream market and with used you can bring in a whole new demographic of people who typically only ever buy a used car right. or need a second car or whatever the reasons might be and so we thought it'd be great to help, A, raise awareness about that, but also to be able to offer an incentive to people. Mm-hmm. So there's a program running right now at Plug and Drive where if you take our EV, use EV seminar and you do a test drive, you're qualified. That's all you have to do. Mm-hmm. And then if you do buy a used EV, you'll get $1,000 from Plug and Drive for, for doing so. And this is in, um, in Ontario? It's in Ontario? It's Ontario program? only right yeah. now. Uh-huh. Uh, and as I said, being funded uh, by a private philanthropist and in partnership with the, the Clean Air Partnership, which is a charity that works on uh, clean air issues. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting. And, uh, and actually, if you can believe it, we just started it uh, in Ottawa on the 14th of April. Yeah. We've hosted only four seminars so far, so it's very early days. And we've already had uh, nine people submit everything, have done all the steps to get their used oh. rebate. So it, it's it's there's a lot of interest right. in it. So yeah. getting traction. Yeah, yeah. We've already had almost a hundred people uh, sign up. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, people now that they're becoming aware of the options in use, they're thinking, "Hey, yeah, that could really work for me." Okay. So, just to switch gears a little bit, sure. um, one of the questions that I've asked everybody who comes on uh, our podcast is, "What is the book that you're reading right now?" Oh. <laughs> Well, actually, I just finished a fantastic book. Okay. Uh, it's actually nonfiction. Mm-hmm. It's called The Good Wife. Uh, it's actually written by a local Toronto author. Oh. And it's a true story about a woman who was in an arranged marriage, uh, 17 years old, sent to Canada to marry somebody and just about her life and what happened to her in, in that whole experience. And now she's got an education she's Mm -hmm. become independent and a variety of things but a really gripping actually quite terrifying story about how um you know it can be difficult to transition Mm -hmm. uh but uh, she made a real success of her life so a recommended uh, read a really excellent book written by a toronto author yeah all right and then finally what do you turn to when you when you fire up your ipad in the morning or um or when you oh, fire excellent up your computer? question what do you turn to first for information to get ready for the day that's that's a really good question there's a couple of services that i really really like uh i get these uh, green car reports okay. and they come every day and so you kind of get the headlines and it's not just ev but it, it's mostly uh electric autonomous hydrogen yep. uh, vehicle related um, and then, uh, if you're aware of a group that's based in BC, actually called Clean Energy Canada, mm-hmm. yep. they put out a weekly 
newsletter, which for me is one of the best newsletters that I get. I think it really sums up a lot of clean energy related mm-hmm. issues. And then, of course, it's more energy than auto, but there's right. always a few EV things in there too. But mm-hmm. um, really good uh, sort of summary of what's going on across Canada. I really like that. And of course, I always look at the globe, but that's just my my news junkie <laughs> side of me. But gotcha. uh, But those are the ones. Kara, thank you for taking the time to, to join pleasure. the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Francis. I'm joined once again by Michael Powell to talk about some interesting stories he's seen in the news recently. Welcome back, Michael. Hi, Francis. So let's start in space. One of the big challenges that any electricity device has is worrying about what happens if there is a magnetic storm that comes from the sun. In the mm-hmm. 1800s, there was a massive solar flare that caused so much geomagnetic radiation, you could actually see the northern lights as far south as Cuba, and caused sparks and telegraph wires. That'd be a big deal today. That's but, a Carrington event. Yeah, sure. The uh, <laughs> I wasn't around then, Francis. The, uh, uh, but the, the big challenge, though, is figuring out these things in the future. It can cause small problems, uh, whether you know, organizing spacewalks for those on the International Space Station, Mm -hmm. or just prepping and uh, readying devices if something big came. So Mm -hmm. the ESA is looking at using what's called a Lagrange point. I might be pronouncing it wrong and calling it a Lagrange point. Uh, But those are the points in space where the gravity of Earth and the sun match out and provide sort of a stable environment. They're setting one that is, you you may have seen one between Earth and the sun, where that spots comets, that's L1. This one will be set at L5, which actually Mm. just trails behind Earth and actually will give us uh, a a heads-up view before the sun turns in our direction to see if there might be a solar storm, narrowing down the amount of time it would uh, take to uh, getting an accurate prediction of when a storm might come to just a couple of hours, which would allow us the heads up to uh, make more accurate predictions and, and harden devices as needed. Wow. And so it's the European Space Agency that's doing this? Yeah, they are. They have a design and are working through the planning process with hopes to get this up in the middle of next decade. Wow. Cool stuff. Uh, but looking a little sooner, uh, Harbour Air in British Columbia, which if you're from or have been to BC mm-hmm. or the seaplanes that dot the skyline as they take off and head from downtown Vancouver to Victoria and or Nanaimo Mm -hmm. uh, that are running classic Canadian float planes is looking to provide a fully electric uh, option for their fleet starting uh, with a proof of concept starting at the end of this year. The idea is to uh, save money for them by switching to an all electric model. And the opportunity they have is because they're small planes, because they only fly short distances, they're able to look at uh, the we're at a point now where battery density is good enough for them to make those flights that they need to. The Long-standing goal for electric uh, aircraft is, I think, something that we're all thinking of. Mm-hmm. Transcontinental flights, I think that's uh, farther in the future than right. than uh, you know we're, we're looking at now. But very soon, if you're taking a meeting in downtown Victoria and are leaving from Vancouver, you could be on a plane that's powered by electricity. And so, what's the timing, um, at least in their in their, uh, their well, they're, they're the hoping stage. to have a first one flying by the end of this year. That'll probably be just for testing. Yeah, and then. Transport Canada will have it, say, I'm sure, but uh, you'll start seeing them roll out on the fleet in the next few years. So fully electric, battery-powered fully electric planes battery between powered. Vancouver and, and Victoria and, and yeah. other points on Vancouver Island. And again, it's a 20-minute flight. It's a short distance. Mm-hmm. And if the weather's bad or there might be issues, they don't just fly. So they de-risk a lot of the area around it, uh, which would be a little harder for some of these longer-distance flights. But it's it's a start. And that's, uh, you know, the, all things start somewhere. Very cool. Michael, thanks for for joining us once again to talk about the news. Thank you. 
my name is Leah Michalopoulos. I'm the manager of U.S. Affairs and Grid Security here at the Canadian Electricity Association. CEA recently came back from our annual Washington Policy Forum for our member company senior executives. We spent three days in Washington, D.C., meeting with stakeholders from government and from industry across the border to talk about how important the Canada-U.S. electricity relationship is. Canadians and Americans share custody of a highly integrated grid. We're actually connected by more than 35 cross-border transmission lines, and there's more under construction right now. Over 80 terawatt hours of electricity flowed across the border in 2017. Most Canadian provinces engage in electricity trade with U.S. states. And the cross-border electricity relationship works really well for both Canadians and Americans alike. The system provides a variety of economic, environment, and resilience benefits to customers on both sides of the border. We enjoy safe, reliable, affordable, and now even increasingly clean electricity thanks to this relationship. I think one of the coolest things about the Canada-US electricity relationship is how well our industry helps each other out in times of need. Canadians aren't aren't hesitant to send crews across the border to help out in the aftermath of major disasters um, in the United States, and our American friends do the same for us as well. Um, I think just in 2018, I think over 400 um, Canadian personnel were sent across the border to help with power restoration following major fires, hurricanes, and big storms in the United States, and we're happy to do that. Our industry is really paying attention to cyber threats now as well. And Canadians and Americans participate in cyber mutual assistance, just as assistance programs, just as we participate in physical uh, mutual assistance programs as well. This is becoming more and more important as um, everything's becoming more digitalized and um, we're all more online now. This is a relationship that we are going to continue to nurture going forward. There's a lot of exciting changes in our industry happening right now um, from new technologies, new resources coming onto the grid. And um, I think the Canadian and American in electricity industry is well suited to take on these challenges and these opportunities together to ensure that our grid remains reliable, affordable, safe, secure, and clean for generations to come. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor, invite you to tune in for future discussions, and also invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.